Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there folks, Oliver here. Hello from Berlin. We have an awesome episode with Horace and myself. We did this one in a live session in front of an audience at The Drivery, a incubator here in Berlin, a few days before Micromobility Europe. It is a super fun conversation. We did a little bit of our talk and then obviously took questions from the audience. I think you'll quite enjoy it. But before we kick off, I want to thank this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Particle. When I first heard that Particle was wanting to sponsor the conference and and our podcast, I was a little bit confused. What on earth does an IoT business want to have with a podcast about the future of urban transport? But as it turned out, when I learned a little bit more, it really hit me. Look, every single one of these shared bikes and scooters that we see out and about is connected to the internet and there is a heap of complexity to make that work well. Particle provides an end-to-end IoT platform from device management and connectivity to hardware for making all of those bikes and scooters actually work. For operators, they can do things like, hey, you, you know, just basically tracking their scooters and being able to assess the, the entire fleet's health to also being able to address all the on-demand regulations in every city. See, as you do that for one city, you then have to expand it out to multiple cities and that gets very complicated, very complex, very quickly. They make this easy. The IoT platform enables customization, fleet management tools, and reliable connectivity to support operators' growth and differentiation in the market. From the operators that I've talked to, Particle has been a godsend in what can be a pretty brutal operations game. So if this is your sort of thing, if you're an operator wanting to learn more, visit particle.io forward slash micromobility to learn more and request a free IoT development kit. All podcast listeners will also receive a free consultation. Go and check it out today. That's particle.io forward slash micromobility. So thanks so much to Particle and looking forward to having Zach, their CEO on panel on stage and with me in Berlin on the software for operators panel to talk through the value that they can bring to operators. But with that, here's our episode. Thank you so much, Chris. Really appreciate it. Cool. Yeah, Horace and I normally when we record in these things, whenever we've done it in person, it's been like in, cooped up in a hotel room or something like this. So this is, it's wonderful. We've, for everybody who's now in the audience, who's listening to this, uh, in front of me I have a beautiful room of probably, what, 30 people or so? More um, Yeah, yeah. So very excited. Thank you so much for coming along. It's wonderful to have you here. I'm Oliver, as is probably obvious, and this is Horace. Horace, what do we want to talk about today? Well, one of the things that Obviously, our host mentioned was the the question of Berlin. I think the question in micromobility Germany. I think it's it's uh, of the moment, and then maybe we want to think about the state of the industry overall. Totally. But just for those who don't know, again, some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with the st- state of Germany in, in micro. But the scooter was illegal here up until about May or or so this year. Does anybody know exactly the time when it was? made possible because it was, as as was mentioned, the first season, but it wasn't even the full season. It was really since about mid-year that we've had, uh, we've had scooters. We've had, of course, bikes here in Germany for a long time, 
and we've had uh, shared bikes and, and many other kinds of car sharing as well from the home of the German automakers. But the interesting thing is that Tier, who actually is one of our hosts here as well, they were the number one app download. That includes games and, you know, Pokemon or whatever people play. Yes. And so it was, it was such a sensation for such a... Such a this um, is when they launched, you mean? Yeah, with, yeah. within a few uh, months, it, I think it stayed at the top. So I don't know the latest, but, but as a result, clearly there was a lot of pent-up demand. So what we saw happening in other European cities with Madrid, with a dozen or more different operators, Paris with like, you know, literally tens of thousands of vehicles in a fairly small town, with uh, all the European capitals, really, except for Germany. And when Germany came online, Boom, it was a huge explosion. And yet, the interesting thing is that the vehicles had to be homologated, meaning that they had to be certified for road use differently than everywhere else. So the yes. German requirements were to have a certain quality of suspension, certain quality of braking, certain speed restrictions that were not elsewhere. Totally. So even though the vehicles are more expensive, the vehicles are less user-friendly in some ways, they still are enormously popular. However, we also hear that there's been a backlash, as almost everywhere as well, yeah, yeah. where people felt that these were either being misused or people were getting into too many collisions, accidents, and so on. And I'm told that the press has been rather negative on this uh, on this product. <laughs> I, I and, think that's uh, been the case everywhere. Yeah. And it's the case everywhere. It's very yeah. predictable, either due to you know the fact that the press is an advocacy for the incumbent. I mean, the, mm. the incumbents are the ones who ultimately pay for media in general. Not to suggest that the you know that there's a journalistic lack of independence, but the, but it does seem like there is some kind of oh, they're definitely lack. Skewed. Yeah. Yeah, there's some kind of willingness or unwillingness to promote a disruption. So that's what I know, that Germany has had a burst of enthusiasm. Certainly I visited, we came scouting for a location for the Micromobility Conference. I remember being in here in February, February yeah. looking for a location right after our San Francisco event. And there were no, no scooters at all. I remember riding a bike though, a line bike, and I don't think the bikes are here anymore. Literally within months. I mean, the yeah. line. The, yeah, the, the line. line ones. Ones. Yeah, sure. And suddenly now you see hundreds of scooters, and just a short walk, as I had today, I must have seen 200 scooters yeah. that were there. One, one really uh, interesting piece of feedback. So when we were originally scouting for setting up the conference, there were a couple of people who were saying to our organizing team, like, "Why? You do, why? What? What about micromobility? This was all before the launch of the scooters, and you know." Yeah, why Berlin? Why Berlin? Why, you know, why scooters? Nobody really cares. And then, of course, the scooters arrived and then they went bananas and everyone was like, oh, that's why. Okay, yeah, I see now. It was yeah. actually a bit of a gamble to decide in January as we did, or February as we did, to come to Berlin because it was they were not legal yet. Yes. And we chose Berlin also because we think our conference was really fundamentally a software conference. Mm -hmm. And this is the hub, the home and hub of software development and engineering and startups uh, in, in, uh, in Germany. It's not an automotive center like you might get in Stuttgart or the big fair towns, the Hanovers and the Frankfurts and so on. Actually, we had many parties interested in in us going there, but we actually went where nobody was asking us to show, sure. which was Berlin. Totally. Well, this is the, the auto industry question is one that I think is really interesting because you know we've got uh, we're going to have Volkswagen and we're going to have is there another OEM that's what's going to be coming? 
But you know, there's really not been that much interest in micromobility well, from the OEMs, and I'm curious. And this is a curious you, thing, and, and yeah. I've spoken with several automotive, either consultants or executives in Germany about micromobility, and they're all very, very excited. Uh, they're like very ears open, eyes open, but. When you come down to asking them, will you be at the conference? Uh, do you have a budget? Are you interested in exhibiting? What are your product roadmaps? When you ask, you know, there's a lot of intellectual interest, but there's actually very little happening when you ask for action. The problem with, with that is, is the classic incumbent response. It's not that they're unaware. In fact, they're more aware than average on what's coming down the pike, so to speak. But when you, they look inward and then they ask, who's going to back this? How is it going to work politically? How is that going to affect my career? How is that going to get me promoted? How, is that going to, how am I going to get budget? Right. The answer is always negative. Right. So you, you do have a lot of, as Elon Musk said for all of his flaws, he did say <laughs> that the initial budget for electric cars amongst automakers was coming from PR. Right. PR was driving the electric vehicle development in the incumbent market because it wasn't meant to be a real thing, it was meant to signal something. And so the, the, the problem I see is the same repetition here that the incumbents are, are thinking about this micromobility as, as we call it, which might include e-bikes and scooters, as something to show that they care, to show and signal right. virtue. And so you'll see them at several trade events, you know, putting out a, an e-bike which was just put together from parts that were available to anyone, not, yes. not anything particularly BMW about the BMW e-bike, or yes. they might do a little bit of kind of, you know, get some engineers who are underutilized and, and then put them to work on that project. But that's the problem between having a stated interest and having an action is, in fact, the most powerful actions are the ones which have zero visibility. They're actually working in a skunk works and not letting anybody know what they're working on, whereas that's the opposite with the automakers. I have been to Eurobike, which is another European institution. Eurobike is um, in uh, Friedrichshafen, which is in, in the south. Sure. And there were hundreds of car maker or OEMs there that were, were exhibiting something, whether they were motors or batteries, but also things like belt drive from Continental, mm -hmm. uh, electric motors from Bosch. Fiat was there showing a Fiat 500 branded uh, scooter. You would see Maserati there with, with carbon fiber bikes. You would see even Pininfarina, which is a design house, showing off uh, some kind of micro vehicle. But these were design exercises. There were branding sure. exercises. They were not about going to market with these things. And so that's the problem I see, is that there's a lot of good intentions there, but not yet action. Because the, the thing that I can see hearing you talk about disruptive innovation for so long, I remember there was the, you once posted a tweet about the fact that Gordon Murray had announced iStream, and the response from the auto industry was effectively nothing. And mm -hmm. that's how you know... And that's a lot more actionable. That's actually a production system that could be used to create cars of a different architecture. Totally. Um, so how yeah. can you... The, the question that I, I really want to dig into is, with micromobility, how can you tell that it's disruptive by the response of the incumbents? Yeah, sometimes this is a this is a, a litmus test of disruption. Is if the incumbent actually ignores the new technology, and by ignoring, I don't mean just being silent, or I mean ignoring in the action sense, right? So it is because also you have to think about their thought process. So they're not ignoring it because they hate it, or they're in spite, or they have some emotion, or don't find it intellectually interesting. Oh, they find it very interesting. The the reason things are ignored is because they cannot find a way to make money and plugging it into 
again, the old organizational structures that exist. So now auto, auto company fundamentally is rooted in distribution, going to the dealers with the cars, and in, in production. And so what is our manufacturing? Uh, what is our utilization of our factories? Now, if you ask questions about micro and say, how are you gonna sell those things to a right. dealer? The answer is you can't because yeah. the dealer can't make money on servicing or anything like that. And then you ask the question, how are you going to manufacture it? Well, there's nothing in our factories that we can utilize and, and, and depreciate our asset base against with these products. So the problem is that the two power centers of the, of the organization are not incentivized at all to act. So even if you are in the strategy group at the very, very top of the corporation and you, you start to ask questions, you get a lot of pushback. So you end up having it be essentially a, a you know, branding exercise or something a bit ephemeral. Yeah. So th that's the problem. Totally. And so I want to go five years from now. Say, for example, if this is truly as disruptive as we we think it is. What do you think the incumbents will be doing at that stage? Like, let's say we're seeing very substantial scale. We've got subscriptions of micromobility all over the place. Every, you know, everybody who lives in an urban center is on some sort of micromobility subscription. That's the predominant way that they get around the city. You know, they use cars when they need them. What can we see from other industries that you've studied? Yeah, sure. What so so there is a book about this, right, that's called The Innovator's Dilemma. And it's in The Innovator's Solution, which was a sequel. And, and the answer for, from those books is that when the, the entrant begins to gain uh, momentum and shows that there's, a, there's a, not only a revenue path but a profitability path, the incumbent flees. In right. other words, they know it's there, but then their response is not to meet it head on, but rather to go to a more profitable segment altogether. And we're seeing this in the United States already with, with automotive in general, because what you have is the brands that are dominant there have been fleeing for a long time to, and not micro entrance, but small car entrance. So you've had always the flight of the big car makers fleeing the small car. Right. And, and so, so what you have in the U.S. already is that the brands of General Motors, Ford, uh, and Chrysler are suburban brands, or exurban brands, I should be more, more general. So what that means is that they don't see themselves in cities at all. They want to be selling SUVs and trucks, pickup trucks, to suburbanites for large, large amounts of money. And so they begin to exit the small car segments and they convert those small cars into bigger cars. Sure. So what, what you end up with is, now I'm using the word brand here carefully, your brand becomes associated with the suburban lifestyle. Sure. So that may be very positive. It's, it means you're great outdoors. It means Jeep. It means climbing mountains and scaling, you know, yes. all this stuff. That's what the imagery is going on. Climbing all of these the curb to my Easy, easy <laughs> to check this, by the way, is just go watch their commercials. Yeah. And how many are shot in city and how many are shot outside the city? And if it's in the city, what kind of trips are they showing? You know, maybe it's using an SUV to go out for dinner, but not using it for commute, right? So you're seeing already the positioning of all these companies. And so what I expect would happen, even in Europe, is you're going to have all these automotive brands become exurban. So they're saying, we're selling things for people who are not living in cities. Yes. And that's fine because that's sustaining. What that does is it drives their profitably higher. They're going to have higher selling prices for the vehicle. They're going to have better profits as, as long as they keep fleeing. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that because there is a great exurban market, but it's one that Micro has zero interest in. Right. Micromobility is going to be an urban solution for any time into the future until it finally does become exurban and that's when it's over, game over for everybody. But, but that's not gonna happen for a great long time. And while it is an urban solution, it's just gonna just 
completely take over that market. And that's, that's how you can watch. Just look at the brand positioning and that, that's the ultimate signal. Cool. All right, well look, I'd love to hear questions from the audience. What we'll do is we'll probably do, this is a relatively short episode. And then uh, for the questions, I'll have Horace repeat it just because the audio isn't particularly good at picking it up. But um, yeah, I'd love to hear. Yeah, the reason is, yeah, you know, we'd much rather hear from you than hear uh, us chat away. You, so you, you what do you want to know? To me on, <laughs> on your on your on your phone and not, not not live. So you came all this way on a Sunday, and we want to hear from you. We want to get your thoughts, and that's why why we want to open up as much as possible our time to you. So if you have any questions, if not, we'll keep going. Yeah. So Matthias asked the question, so we, we talk about, well, we have talked a lot about micromobility as being for the developing world, and we're here in Germany, I mean, is there, what's the story there? So is there, is, there is a story, uh, the reason I said that is because when you, when you measure demand, you can classify it into two categories. One is existing demand, so substitution, and another one is competing against non-existing demand or creating the demand, and that's called non-consumption. Now, in emerging markets, you have billions of people are gonna join the urban economy, the urban market, and those trips do not yet exist. So to solve their problem, we're gonna probably apply micro because the car cannot supply that demand. But in, in the existing industrialized nations, it's a substitution problem. So although some market, some demand will be created, fundamentally most people are already well served with transportation options. So there, the low end aspect of it is that, can I do that in a more convenient, maybe lower cost, but most typically they actually are not cost sensitive. They're gonna be looking for more convenience, they're gonna be looking for optionality or option value. Whereas in emerging markets, it's about saying, I wanna get A to B, all, all my option today is walking and I, I don't have a car, I can't afford public transport even if it is available. So that solution will be more about having, uh, having something of, as opposed to nothing. Here, the questions are how do we make our cities more, more livable? And by the way, here in the Western world, we're going to see a lot of government pressure as well to sort of help this process along because again, there are political forces acting as well. But yes, that's a great question and don't forget that in the creation of a disruptive new innovation, the vast majority is new demand. We didn't have, when we look at telephones, when we look at electricity, when we look at automobiles even in the early days, no one was asking and if you had alternatives, but suddenly something is so good that a thousand times more demand is created than was even substituted. So the number of train journeys that disappeared is nothing compared to the number of auto journeys that was created as a result of this new development. And of course, it's a cycle because the, the revenues are used then to, through taxes to build infrastructure, which are then allowing even more people to get involved. Same thing with cellular. The money comes from cellular, uh, build more, more network than network feeds itself. So expect some of that to happen as well. And, and it's always difficult to quantify and to plot the S-curve because of, it's nonlinear. Uh, it's nonlinear and feedback, which makes it very hard to predict. But history, if it's any guide, tells us that it's inevitable. Would you then say that most of the innovation will come from the emerging markets? Repeat. Sorry, what's your name? Oh, my name's Hans. Hans. So Hans asked, do you not think that most of the innovation in that regard then will come from the uh, It could, it could very markets? well. But again, because we have two markets in, in essence, we might end up with two innovation uh, paths. We might see, for example, 
And I'm not going to talk about, let's say, your stereotypical Africa. Let's say India, for example. India already is the largest two-wheeler market in the world. There's over 24 million motorbikes sold there. And these are, you know, regular motorcycles with, uh, with four-stroke <coughs> engine. But what we could see is an electric motorcycle easily take root there. And that electric motorcycle then may expand to an electric shared three-wheeler the, well, the, the, the tuk-tuk market the tuk-tuk in India market is already, like is already getting electrified. Yeah. And in that market, people are not necessarily keen on scooters or, or because the, the, you have bigger wheels, it handles the terrain better and so on. So that market could very well evolve based on the form factors that are in use there. Now they're getting electrified and then eventually shared. Mm. And then the question is really, is, are you going to see crossovers? Would that market that's very much emerging uh, suddenly export itself? because they figured out something really clever, or could it go the other way? And that debate was also going on a year or two ago with respect to scooters in the U.S. coming to Europe versus European e-bikes going there to the United States. And here, even between the U.S. and Europe, you have a huge dichotomy in terms of what people think of what is micro, right? In Europe, you have personal-owned vehicles selling in the two and a half million units a year, which are actually electric vehicles. In Germany alone, we were looking at between one and 1.3 million e-bikes sold a year uh, versus literally thousands or tens of thousands of e-cars. So there's orders of magnitude greater popularity of of e-bikes, whereas in the United States you have like 300,000 e-bikes in a market, you know, that's enormous. And yet you have the scooter business there taking off. And and so my puzzle was for a year was why don't we see more e-bikes in Europe as much as we see scooters in, uh, uh, sorry, e-bikes in the U.S. as much as we see scooters in Europe. And, and, and that is a very big mystery why we saw it go this way, because it's completely unpredictable in my mind. It seems that from an engineering point of view, completely backwards. But that's, that's the reality. Yeah. I think it's also interesting as well, because I advise some New Zealand government about this at the moment, and we're doing a, a project on the tech pipeline. So they're asking, okay, what is the tech going to look like? in five, you know, three to five years. And in some ways it's like, well, we don't know, but we imagine that there's gonna be a lot of really, really, really cheap vehicles that are gonna be manufactured for these developing markets, which all of a sudden will find their way to New Zealand and you'll just have this giant proliferation of them because that went very low end. And then all of a sudden everybody like, yeah, great. And then let's not forget, we're very early on, two years in, technically on scooters, probably five years in on e-bikes. Mm. I think the e-bike sales in Europe, even in 2006 were negligible. And yet, uh, if you looked at other markets, which were, again, in their infancy, automotive, cellular, personal computer, uh, and you look at the early products in those categories, they were just completely different than what we ended up with the mass market adoption. Uh, so, so whenever you're dealing with an S-curve, and whatever happens between zero and 15%, completely changes between 15 and, and 30, and 30 to 50, and so on. And so we haven't had the iPhone moment yet. We have had the Motorola brick phone, uh, mm-hmm. or we've had maybe a flip phone or something like that. The Nokia 3310. So I, I, I maintain that the I Xiaomi... I don't even think we're at no, Nokia I, No, I think the Xiaomi My 365 is like the Nokia 3310 of, of maybe Maybe, space. actually, because the, those were in the billions, though. Those men, I was there. I, we, yeah. To get to that level, you already went through 10, 15 years yeah, of, of cellular phones. Cool. So, yeah. 
Tim, Tim asked the um, great question, which is, you know, Horace's story of how he even came to be doing micromobility as he was looking at the car industry and he could see that micromobility came along and it was going to disrupt the car industry in a way that he had me up a spot with Tesla and, and, and other EV manufacturers. So the question is, is there something that you can see that's going to come along and disrupt micromobility? Yeah, very good question. So, so yes, that's my frustration was that in looking at the car business, none of the suspects, the usual suspects are electrification autonomy or self-driving and ride hailing these were the three suspects and com communications which is kind of i thought not really ever really a candidate but but these are the ones that people cited as the big 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 changes that would come communications that, like telecom as in like, yeah as in having a, work. a gsm chip in the car i don't see oh, I, I, I don't see how that would change the uh, the business much sure okay. there's clearly to be sustaining but the other three maybe there's something there if you can really figure something really in the business side and I looked and looked at these three and I couldn't find them because their primary, you know, the leaders in each of those was, was clearly not set up to disrupt. Uh, Tesla was not set up to disrupt and Uber was not set up. Although in theory it could be both of those, but they're like, when you see exact dig into it, you see that they're not going to build cars in a, in a truly innovative way. And Uber is not gonna be building cars at all. Yeah. Although maybe you know something I don't. No, no, I don't know anything. Um, I did have. Well, I know actually it was a very interesting conversation because we were, we were when I was at Uber, we had conversations there about we have to go out and buy buy some cars, and I remember how much can I say? There was about a two billion dollar check minimum to go and buy a bunch of cars. Like that's that's the sort that's of. So you see, to, you see the pain points there. And right? and we're not made to be. Uber was yeah. not. So uh, neither would Uber, to Uber that, like so. to write a huge check for cars that they know will depreciate. Nor would they. Put, put those on their balance sheet, nor would they even get even in the worst frying pan into the fire situation, going <laughs> yeah. and building cars by spending hundreds of billions on, on yeah. capacity. My conclusion was that it doesn't look like these are gonna make it as disruptions, and so it was a very, very sad moment because I couldn't write a book with Clay about it. Um, <laughs> so then, uh, but then I, so in that moment of disillusionment, I actually did get a chance to ride on an e-bike, and that was, that was the moment when I said, I've been looking and measuring the wrong thing. It's all the aspects, if you look at the car industry from every angle, you look at it from manufacturing, you look at it from business models, you look at it from countries with political labor laws, every single thing you could think about that industry and say, is there a crack in there I can jam into that crack a lever to break it open and redesign it? You couldn't find it. I just, you know, not even the point of like, you know, countries which are non-producing getting into production, you know, that's happened with Korea and China. Kazakhstan and others becoming producers, but that didn't change the industry at all. Mm. So um, my frustration was I couldn't crack that nut. And then when I looked at the bikes, I said, hmm, but no one's, no one's got any reports, no one's got any databases, no one's got any kind of really quantified market uh, for these things. And, and it's cousin the LSEV, uh, it's cousin the motorcycles, mm -hmm. although those are understood, but like electric versions of them, shared versions. So that was why I, I started digging in and saying, well, if no one's doing this analysis, I should try to do it myself. And then it, pieces started to fall into place because I was years before, or maybe one or two years before, Bird started. And, sure. and, and so the, the capital flowing into the market, the startups and you know, blowing up into that market, to me, that was 
actually just like exactly what the what the expectation was, yeah. right? Uh, but what was it? What was the question? question the question was: do Oh yeah, how does it, get yeah, does it get disrupted itself? I mean, is, yes. this, is it too early for us to tell that? Yes, well, yes, it does get disrupted because yeah. even the Ford got disrupted. So the Model T is born, and like not not even ten years later, they're facing existential crisis because General Motors is able to do exactly the same thing, but they're able to improve the model every year. So they're doing they're doing very rapid product development on top of manufacturing, which needs a stability. So wow, that was a big, big change. And that after after that happened and General Motors was almost killed Ford, Toyota a few years later or decades later because of the war, but Toyota comes in and almost kills General Motors. Arguably, they did kill them, actually. Mm -hmm. And so you, you saw that process of the industry, even though it, it was disruptive, it being itself re-disrupted because of new innovations happening in that core manufacturing question. Now, in the micro sense, what we will see is, therefore, companies that are coming in and saying, no, we're going to not charge any money for rides. Yeah. My expectation is we're going to see marginal cost of a mile go to zero then we're gonna see people adding services that are not transportation related on top of transportation. So you'll see app economies, you'll see new, potentially new trip chaining ideas. We'll see, of course, a huge amount of vehicle innovation, but that will serve the new business models. So to the extent that you're gonna you know, go out there and, and offer a free transportation service, then you're gonna need a much smarter vehicle and maybe a much more durable vehicle, even more than it is planned to be today. So then you starting to see, and by the way, in the phone business, we saw again, Motorola starting out of the gate strong, Nokia crushing them after a while, and then Nokia itself getting crushed by Apple and Google, who were like software companies coming in and saying, yeah, we'll take it from here. So how did that happen? Where these, these one company is, is essentially pioneering, the other one actually expands the base hugely, attacks emerging markets, ends up having 70% market, market share in India, and that gets crushed by something that actually is even more expensive than anybody thought a phone could ever be. Cool. Now, what, what was going on there? So again, if you look at the PC industry, same, same question is like, who ends up being the winner? We're not the pioneers or even the second version. Uh, it was IBM, oh, well, actually Apple, then IBM with yep. the PC, then, then Dell comes down. around yeah. and says, we'll take it from here. Yeah. And in the meantime, Apple kind of, manages to survive and then they end up actually owning a lot of the uh, these are mind share if yeah. you will if not the market share but so yes an industry is created but it goes through internal restructuring and, and then the incumbents get wiped out once they are become incumbents right so right. What, what what that would tell you historically is then therefore that the early movers here unless they pivot and they begin to think about themselves differently then they are in, the, in a situation where that thing they held most dear, which is their, their pricing structure, ends up disappearing. It ends up getting wiped out because somebody comes in and says, oh, I'm not going to charge anything for my service. Robert's question was, Horace, you said that the car manufacturer is going to flee the city, and yet you can see Daimler saying, hey, we're shifting to be a mobility company, Mercedes-Benz trying to get into scooters, all that sort of stuff. Right, and, and I wish them well. I own several Mercedes-Benz. Um, <laughs> I don't drive them, but I own them. Um, but my, my point is that, you know, again, this seems like more of an intellectual admiration, recognition of the value of, of, of this idea. 
And I might say, and again, this is not a knock against them, but I might say that Nokia said exactly the same thing. We're an internet company. It was a famous thing inside the company at the time, mm -hmm. saying that the, the CEO goes out and says, we're no longer a phone company, we're an internet company, whatever that meant. But the, <laughs> the realization by around 2005, even four and five, that was that they were going to have to shift and pivot away from selling hardware. But again, when you have to, you have to follow the actions and see what they're doing. Now, yes, they are doing Daimler and always launching actually their own scooter service. They're certainly trying to attach car services on top of car selling. They're doing a few things to move uh, in the right direction. But I would watch it very carefully. Again, the history suggests that they need to do a lot more than that. And that's where you need to hold them to their word and say, how much commitment is there? And it's, it's not enough to run pilots. It's not enough to do prototypes. It's not enough to, mm -hmm. to come across with the right brand. It's very hard. I mean, we were at the, just again, not Daimler, but BMW. I was at the, you know, the Berlin Marathon was today and BMW was all over the Berlin Marathon, mm. people wearing waving flags and, and wearing BMW <laughs> the, the logos and the, the, car, <laughs> the cars, the cars being driven or BMW i3s. Yeah. And you know, why would they do that? Because again, they want to show their, you know, urban to some degree, their, their city and, and, active. And, and active transport or, or at least, you know, humanistic points of view. But yeah. the i3 is not going to stay in production. No. Um, and it's going to take more than an army of i3 to to change the, the positioning of the product around micro. So yeah, it's, it's a tough thing to do. Okay, cool. Chris's question was around the, the inner shared micromobility setup at the moment, 75% of your costs are relatively fixed around the vehicles and 25% is labor. So it's not like there's that much flexibility in being able to deploy these into developing markets. Is there yeah. a way that you, we could go into developing markets with say, for example, refurbished scooters from the... Well, know? first, I think there's two questions. Number one, there is, Yes, 75% is still uh, today hardware, but I think there are ways to squeeze that quite a bit more lower. So there is possibility to redesign and re-engineer. And it may not be, uh, the, the, by the way, of that, the bulk is the battery and the motor. So the drivetrain, if you will, the rest is mostly just uh, commodity metal. So to the extent that you can make batteries cheaper, that's gonna, that's gonna be a big deal. And that is happening because actually of automotive doing it uh, for us with scale. But yes, there is something to still reduce that cost. But the other thing is, again, uh, and you asked about recycling or repurposing vehicles. And that, that, again, needs to be worked out. I think it's a great shame that vehicles last so, so little in the field, and, and that needs, that's unacceptable. But to the extent that they can, I, I, yeah, there's an opportunity there. Yeah. I was just in London, and then the, the London Transport Museum is absolutely phenomenal. And the, there was a section there where they were talking about the early cars that came into London. And the cars would only last about four to six weeks because the roads were so bad and they'd all disintegrate. And I was like, man, there's gotta be some parallels in here for a scooter game, you know? Like, all of these things will evolve. And I, you know, to Horace's point as well, I'm bullish on there being, we'll just get the, the vehicles And I, cheap I don't think that. scooters are gonna fly in, in, in a lot of emerging markets. The yeah. road conditions do not permit that wheel size. What we'll see is either bigger, bigger wheels, but also most likely, I think it's just the plain old motorcycle uh, is under, appreciated as a micro vehicle. Yeah. The motorcycle in the, in the West is seen mostly as recreational. 
whereas it's a very much a utilitarian uh, vehicle in poorer countries, and it is the first vehicle most people get and then upgrade to a car. So the, po the point is in the West, you, you actually start with the car and you upgrade to a motorcycle. It becomes the thing you ride on the weekends, and it becomes the thing you, you use to demonstrate that you've made uh, certain lifestyle choices. And so, with notable exceptions, but still fairly, fairly rarely used purely utility, you know, for utility purposes. Or cool. You don't see people riding motorcycles to, you know, two people at once. You don't see children on motorcycles, which would imply, by the way, utility of dr driving your family around is a huge <laughs> utility problem. Yes. And yet that's not a Western use mode. Mm -hmm. So to see how the evolution of a motorcycle into an electric family vehicle, into an electric... This is, by the way, why I chose 500 kilograms as the cutoff of micromobility, because it allows the expansion of the motorcycle into a three or four wheeler or the e-bike into three or four wheels, enough for four or five people to be in it. And by the way, if you took the 500 kilograms and divided it by the number of passengers, it comes out to about 100 kilograms per person. Mm. So in my mind, a 500 kilogram vehicle is not one person vehicle, it's a four or five person vehicle, which is about the, what we think today is a car's uh, you know, capacity. So anyway, that, that's the logic there. Cool. Yes. So Shaminda's question is, have you seen any form factors for colder climates that you see emerging that are, that are quite interesting? Well, first of all, I'd like to make sure that people realize that you can ride in the cold with a regular uh, bike. <laughs> I live in Finland, and uh, many people do, and with certain improvements and innovations. One of the things, by the way, I, I blew my mind about uh, what's, what's been happening in bikes. So somebody pointed out, like, look at the, the, the new style of bikes with very big tires. And oh, the fat tire bikes? The fat tire yeah, bikes, like but also even, even yeah. like a two-inch two or, or four centimeters wide tire. Mm -hmm wasn't seen, didn't exist, maybe a few mountain bikes, but you know, they weren't very common in general. And what made that possible, you'd think, what was the, what was the... It was the additional power, right? No, no, people think it's power, because yeah. the, the drag isn't that much worse. No, it's disc brakes. Because with disc oh, brakes, you no longer need the calipers to be biting into the, the, they need to go over the tire and pinch the rim. And so you didn't want to make a caliper that was that big to have to go all the way around a big fat tire. So once you went to a disc brake, you can make a tire as big as you wanted. And so the disc brake technology trickling down to bicycles completely changed everything about it. Because once you have the big tires, then you can have different suspension. You can actually get rid of suspension in many cases if it's just a, a city vehicle. You can reconfigure a lot of the bike's design. And so what's, what's interesting is then that brings up the traction, that brings up the comfort, that brings up the, the winterability of that vehicle. And once you have disc brakes, then you can bring in ABS. Once you have ABS, then you have better safety, especially in low traction. Mm -hmm. Then you do traction control. So you like no more wheel slip, even if you're doing uh, high power input. So what happened is, by the way, this technology didn't come straight to the bike from the car. It came via the motorcycle. So the motorcycle began having ABS and disc brakes back in the 70s, 80s maybe. Uh, certainly disc first and ABS in the 80s. And then you, you know, that trickled down and, and made the pricing. So now I think it, I saw a quote once for an ABS for a bike system costing about $200. That is an, after, uh, you know, so like an add-on you could, you could put in there as, a, as an OEM. And so if that never drops like $30, $40, then someone will say, well, it's a no-brainer, right? It's either upgrading the, you know, to aluminum frame and, you know, I can put ABS in. So now then, you see how this catalyzes an entire new 
thinking about cold weather. And of course, once you have better, bigger wheels, then you start to think about, okay, I've got more power now, I've got more control. Can I actually do something with lighting? Can I do, oh, by the way, lighting is another huge thing because with a battery on board, you can have a light on the bike that is brighter than the car light. Mm. And literally, you're unrestricted because car light's brightness is limited. <laughs> you can actually blind, blind oh. everybody oh, with an e-bike. wonderful. Yeah, good to know. So, so <laughs> you, but this is where you're cheating. You're cheating the guys who are coming in early mm. or, or at the bottom are actually have, have a lot more ability and flexibility than the incumbents do. So, so then you've got a potential, like you mentioned, cargo. Cargo bikes are an awesome category. I think they're the SUV of micromobility. Mm -hmm. I think they're actually very desirable also for women riders. I think, if anything, maybe even more female prefer cargo bikes than males uh, because they're not interested in showing off their, their skill or, or ability. They're just saying, I need to get job done. And that means moving people and moving cargo and moving things. And so they, they would do their shopping with them and so on. And I think that that is a... I would pay very close attention, a huge amount of innovation going on there. Uh, if you go to a bike show, I think in the last Eurobike, there were so many cargo bikes you couldn't count them all. Mm. So uh, and they're highly profitable today because Whoa, they're fairly, they're really fairly expensive. They're, yeah. they, but that's again the, uh, because it's a new category. Yeah. So you're you're going to look at different wheel counts. You're going to look at stability and other things that are different. So I'm very bullish on both cargo and uh, winter dry riding because of these. No one invented them. They're just suddenly being taken from another category that worked out how to make it cheap. Totally. I'll add one thing there, which is that the new motors that we're starting to see come down the pipe. I wouldn't be surprised to see solid state bike setups where you'd have your braking and your acceleration handled by regen. So the, the new boosted rev, for example, on the scooter has got like 1.5 kilowatts and that thing you can, almost all the braking is regen. And I know because we've done investments in companies that you're, you're starting to get to like level of control on these motors that are, I mean, it will be the most amazing ride. And I actually think you'll even decouple from chains. So you'll pedal into a generator, which will then run to a front and a rear mm. motor on your bike. And then that whole thing, it'll be like a solid state bike. It will be one of the, yeah, stunning, and it'll be cheap because one of the, those motor prices are going to come down. One of the unsung heroes here is the, all the motor development that you mentioned. And here's the thing about that is that computer control, a lot of the motors now require you know, sampling and things going at, at megahertz rates. So, so you're dealing with people trying to optimize certain aspects because in the old days with analog motors, you couldn't, you couldn't do so much. But the new motors are, are entirely computerized. And that means that, that you can start to, again, think outside the box of what that motor can do. And like you said, braking or acting as a transmission, yeah. having sensors on board also to help the rider in some ways. And so th th there's a lot going on, and I'm not privy to all of this going on, but you can sort of sense that the talent is being applied correctly into these problems because that is what is seen as a pain point, and therefore uh, great, great minds are being, being as a challenge. Great, great question. We have a gentleman behind here, yeah. So Juan's question is about um, what we're seeing is a lot of hu huge amount of growth in the revenue of a lot of these um, shared micromobility companies, but that isn't always coming uh, with profitability. What are the things? What are the things that are going to shift the shift the needle on being able to make them profitable? Well, yeah. So often these two things are are said in the same breath: profit and, and, and revenue. And it's true that profit can be very elusive, but we've seen many examples of failed IPOs just recently. <laughs> companies trying to go public without profits. And that may be indicative of a 
bubble going on in a lot of these venture-backed companies that are, are jumping the gun a bit on IPOs. But generally, the theory says that there is a discovery process of the profit formula that depends on the previous discovery process for, for a revenue formula, so that the two are linked. Revenue is necessary, but not sufficient for profit. But, but again, to think back to, to Google. This is a classic example of a company that didn't have any profit formula, that discovered it along the way. And I think that's what a lot of people are hoping to see that happen again, where, where getting lots of users and getting lots of usage Eventually, they sat down and say, "Well, how can we figure out a way to monetize this usage?" And so that always that hope springs eternal. But uh, in the micro sense, there is a very clear value proposition. Usually, profit comes when you deliver value, and you, your delivery is higher than even what the customer gains, right? So I don't have the answer, but the the expectation is there that there will be something, and I, I suspect it will be something that we can't imagine today what it is. I don't think it's going to be just a margin on a, on, a, on a cost base. That is the assumption. But you see Uber, after so many, actually more than a decade of operations, hasn't yet managed to make a margin, at least on, across all of its territories. Wow, you know. <laughs> and and you, you would have thought that, hey, it's pretty clear what they have to do, right? They, if they could just reduce their costs a little bit, they could be profitable. But it turns out that they're always challenged to spend more and more and to acquire customers and so on, to acquire drivers. And you end up actually always running a little deficit that you're promising all the time. Yeah, but next quarter, next quarter. I actually think structurally that is not a solid business model. They need to figure out another way to get paid rather than delivering the time of the driver and the cost of the vehicle, which is what yeah. they're doing. Yeah. They need to think outside that box, outside of the utility box, outside of being a better taxi. And now I'm gonna, you know, just like you don't pay for search, you don't pay, thank you for giving me the thousand best hits that you possibly could give me in exchange for my, my, my question. I don't pay for the answers on Google, which is what the utility value is on Google. I search for something and there's the answer. It used to be that that answer was worth millions, right? No, Google is paid by some random person who paid to put their answer first. Mm. But you, you can ignore that if you wish. But yeah. how did they work out the auction mechanism by which multiple bidders are bidding on the right to be in your view? That is completely different. They're redirecting what the utility is. They're saying the utility value of search is not in the, in the eye of the beholder, it's in the eye of the advertiser. So I think what he's saying is very abstract, and this is working with Horace happens a lot. But if I'm going to give something, if I can say what I think he means practically, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that... I thought it was perfectly clear. Okay. Well, the one thing that... So the thing that I can see that's a possibility that's coming along is this idea that, like, hey, you go into... When I was at it, one of the things that we, we oftentimes talk about is, like, why aren't businesses paying for us to go and deliver people to them? And we, we, we were developing systems to be able to do that. Micromobility companies are the perfect example of that. I am super surprised. I mean, you're starting to see it now with a couple of companies, but like the idea that you could have an you could buy rides from a micromobility company in mass to a particular location. So it's like, oh, we'll have everybody turn up, and if you if you come to our place tonight, you'll get a free tier ride here. And at the moment, there's no marketplace for that. No players are playing in that space. But you think about it, it's like, well, I don't mind paying three dollars if I know that the person's going to come and they're going to effectively buy twenty beers. 
you know, that would be worth it to me. So let me, I, I've said this before, and I don't know where, but in, in maybe I should think again, but, but let me blurt it out. The value is not going to be in delivering a person from A to B. The valuing, because you think you're at A, you want to go to B in time C. The value is, I'm at A, I think I want to go to B, but if you take me to D, I'll pay you more. That's what the internet did. When you got online, you didn't go there because you knew where you wanted to go, and you said, I want to transfer that file to my computer. That was the old internet before web. The old internet was a cheap way to transfer files, or via email, a cheap way to communicate with someone else without paying per minute. That was the utility value of the internet. Cheaper phone calls, cheaper mail, frankly, not phone calls yet, but cheaper mail and cheaper file transfer. And then somebody said, you thought you wanted that file, but I'm gonna give you something else. And that's what browsing came to be, and the word surfing came from that. Surfing means what? You get on a wave and you don't know where it takes you. And so we right now think of transportation as something that gets us A to B, and we know where we wanna go. And the reason we, we do that is because it's so damn expensive. I'm not gonna go, go off on a wild ride somewhere random, because my costs are so high, I better know where I'm going. And I better, you know, have that predictability. But if someone says, if the cost of your trip is exactly zero, go anywhere. And then you say, well, where then? And that's what the internet did. It found you a billion other places you want to go instead of that file transfer server that you thought you wanted to go. And so what the internet did for communication and for, for, for information is it made so much of it available at such a low cost that the value came in redirecting what people wanted. And so for transportation to be truly revolutionized, we need to move away from the idea that we even know where we want to go. Now, if you, if you can grok that, then you start to see what the real disruption is of micromobility, because it's the one thing that can enable such a low marginal cost, the way a bit transfer cost has gone to zero, a human transfer cost goes to zero, and then what? Cool. And on that lofty note, uh, we are going to conclude the recording. So thank you, uh, everybody, for being in the room. And we will just uh, say uh, thank you very much, Horace, and also thank you to the Drivery for hosting us here. It was super wonderful. Thank you, and we will see you soon. Thanks. Thanks.